0: Please take your copy of God's word, though, and turn with me now once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Uh, This morning, we're looking at verses 32 through 43 in Luke, chapter 23. We're spending our time in this passage looking at uh, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ from uh, different perspectives, looking at uh, the significance of the cross from different angles, and uh, this morning I want us to think about the significance of Calvary for Jesus' own shame and for our shame. I think all of us can probably think of moments in our lives where we have been uh, deeply embarrassed uh, to the point of feeling shame, even humiliation, wanting to run and hide away from scrutinizing eyes, share one of my own stories with you. It's not all that awful, but I can still keenly remember how ashamed I felt on this occasion. I was eight or nine years old, and I was with my my dad and my older brother, and we were headed over to a farm uh, to get some milk. At the time, there was a dairy farmer at uh, the church we belonged to, and every week we went and Purchased milk from this farmer. So I was going over with my dad and my older brother. We pulled in in our old blue Dodge Colt, and uh, my dad's out of the car. He's in the barn uh, talking to his friend, the farmer, and I I climb up from the back seat into the driver's seat, and my brother's in the passenger seat, and uh, he plants a seed. He, He says, hey, why don't you why don't you try to drive the car a little bit here while we're on the farm? I thought that sounds like a lot of fun. So he he walked me through what I needed to do, okay? You want to put your foot on the brake, and then you're going to shift down into drive. Just go forward a little bit, and then hit the brakes, and put it in the park. Okay, that's simple enough. All the while, you know, my mind is, my conscience is screaming, this is a bad idea, this is a really, really bad idea but I I wanted to do it anyway. For whatever reason, maybe for his own personal safety, my brother got out of the car (laughs) and signaled that it was time to uh, shift the car. And so I found the brake, compressed the brake pedal, shifted, thinking that I put it into drive when in fact I had only shifted into reverse. and uh, let off the brake pedal. When I expected the car to move forward, I started moving backwards, and my brother went into a panic. I panicked, and the next few seconds are really a blur. I don't, I don't know what happened for the next 10 seconds. The next thing I remember is being in a ditch and getting the car stuck, and my dad and the farmer coming, sprinting out of the barn, and uh, just a, a load of shame. Uh, it I felt as though you know a truckload of shame backed up and just dumped into my lap, and I just wanted to go hiding. I think it's probably I think it's probably safe to say that most, if not all, of us can can share stories of humiliation and shame. Some of you here today could share such stories, and there wouldn't be anything funny about it. It would be absolutely heartbreaking. And here's the thing I want us to understand today that no matter how bad your story of shame is, that Jesus is able to help you. I hope we'll see that today. But let's go ahead and, and read our passage in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Remember, Jesus has been led out from Jerusalem by the soldiers to be crucified. Um, he was unable to carry the cross beam, so the execution soldiers uh, conscripted a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the beam for Jesus to Calvary. And now jumping in, we read that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I wonder as you read those verses, what strikes you? What stands out to you in that passage? I'll tell you what stood out to me this week as I was looking at this text in preparation. It was verse 33. I read it over and over again. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. I read that over and over again. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. And I stopped and I thought, that's it? That's all, that's all, that's all Luke is going to tell us about the physical crucifixion of Christ Jesus? He's not going to go into any kind of detail about what took place in the crucifixion of our Lord. It's just this sweeping comment. They led him away and there they crucified him. So that's what what stood out to me is how Luke does not focus on the physical realities of the crucifixion. I mean, wouldn't it? It would be hard to think of a less sensational way of describing... What's taking place here? They let him away and crucify him. There's nothing sentimental about it. It's as matter of fact as you can get. Now, we, we tend to, to focus on the physical pain. You know, We could go into all of the horrendous details associated with Roman floggings and Roman crucifixion. But the Gospels don't focus on any of that. It's not like the film that we mentioned in passing last week, Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, which confronts you with the gory details of Jesus' uh, flogging and crucifixion. And so I think that leads us to say, yes, Jesus suffered immense physical torment, but so did two other men on that day, one on his right and one on his left, and so did thousands of others throughout the Roman Empire when Crucifixion was a means of capital punishment. So physical anguish is not what makes Jesus' suffering unique. And I'm afraid, I think, sometimes as people reflect upon this story, as people are simply driven to nothing more than a superficial pity for Jesus. Oh, it's so sad that Jesus went through this great suffering. But when it comes to the physical details, again, all Luke says is, Isn't it remarkable? There they crucified him. He does not direct our attention to the physical agony of the cross. Instead, he directs our attention to the shame of the cross. So here's what I think we should notice in this passage. Not just that Jesus was put to death by crucifixion. But that he is thoroughly rejected, reviled, railed against humiliated despised and shamed that's the picture Luke has been painting for us and let's try to fill it out to see the big picture together this morning and some of its implications for our lives let's let's back up for a moment first of all and rely on some of the other gospel accounts to fill out our picture today Back up to Pontius Pilate. Let's go back to Pilate's headquarters. After Jesus was condemned to crucifixion, you know that it was the protocol to first uh, flog that condemned criminal. Now Mark tells us that Jesus is with the, the Roman battalion and he's about to be led out to be crucified. But first what happens is the soldiers call the whole battalion together. Battalion is roughly 600 soldiers. Now we don't know how many of them were there. All Mark says is that the whole battalion came together and they were united in a singular purpose. And that purpose was to have fun with Jesus. We, we know that they took uh, purple robes and clothed him. They took off his garments and they put these these royal robes upon him. And then they fashioned a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. Matthew tells us they placed a reed in his hands, a stick, a a mock scepter. And so here is Jesus in royal robes with a crown of thorns upon his head, holding a scepter, and the soldiers are bowing down before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then Mark tells us that they took a stick. I think the stick that they had placed in Jesus' own hands, they took a stick and they began beating him with it. And for good measure, measure, they, they spit on him and said, Hail, hail, King of the Jews, homage to Jesus. And then they strip him of the cloak that they put on him and put his clothes back on him. And, and my friends, you understand that Mark is being intentionally discreet. You know, who knows what unfolded in these moments as a mass of soldiers lost all sense of self-control and let loose and had their way with the Lord Jesus. When they had their fill, when they finished up, they put his clothes back on him and they led him away to crucify him. Now, I want to make sure that you have the right understanding of this scene. Think of what a sight this must have been. Because it's not as though Jesus was enduring this humiliating scene in good health. This happens after Jesus has been flogged. And you know the process of Roman flogging, being whipped with a whip that held bones and pieces of metal designed to rip apart human flesh and expose bones and tear open arteries. And so Jesus is not standing before this Roman battalion saying, okay, guys, let's get this over with. He's barely standing before them half dead. And he has a crown placed upon his head, a crown of thorns. And he's being mocked as he can barely stay on his own two feet. And so he is brutally humiliated by this Roman battalion. And then he's led out by another group of soldiers where we see another scene of humiliation. He is now humiliated by the execution squad. Now remember, um, I think we could add here the very fact that along the way Jesus wasn't even able to carry his own crossbeam, And in, of course, Roman culture, the cross was such a symbol of utter humiliation that soldiers wouldn't touch it. And so they had to pull a man out of the crowd and force him, compel him to carry Jesus' own cross to, to, to Calvary. Yet another example of his humiliation But now he's being humiliated by the execution squad. Verse 36, back in Luke 23, the soldiers are at the place called the Skull, Golgotha, sometimes referred to as Calvary. And we're told they mocked Jesus. They offered him sour wine. You know, there was a type of wine that could alleviate some of the pain. But instead of offering that to Jesus, they offer him Wine that is bitter to the taste. They're not trying to do Jesus any favors here. And they're saying, if you are the the king of the Jews, just save yourself. You know, here's your chance to prove yourself. Just show us your power and come down. And of course, then they sat there before these men who were being crucified and gambled for Jesus' cloak so there he is on the cross with with no dignity and utter shame, hoisted up to die, and the soldiers, you know, what what do they care? This is just another day at the office for them. While we're here, we might as well have a little bit of fun. Let's get out the dice and roll the dice for this man's clothes. Mark tells us that while Jesus was hanging there, there were people passing by in order to come into the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus and these two criminals are being crucified in a very public place where people would walk by. And Mark's gospel tells us that as passers-by, pass by this scene, they derided Jesus. Now the word there is is blasphemeo. It's a very strong word. They they uh, They weren't passing by Jesus and simply... You know. What a dork. They they were passing by Jesus cursing him. You SOB. You piece of you know what. You effing this or that. Now I'm I'm not saying that to be edgy or funny. I'm saying it because we need to understand the significance of what Mark is communicating to us there. That these people passing by Jesus were dropping the equivalent of F-bombs on the Lord Jesus. Such was their malice toward him. And who are, these are nobodies. These are people so far beneath the Lord Jesus, but they get in line and have their share in the fun. Then we have the chief priests and the scribes uh, describe the rulers in verse 35. As Luke talks about them, they're, they're delighted. I mean, they're tickled pink at the spectacle unfolding before their eyes because they have been conspiring together for some time about how they were going to destroy Jesus. And this is the fulfillment of their plan. And so they mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. I mean, you can just read into things a little bit here and hear their conversation amongst themselves. He he healed the sick. Sure bet he'd like to heal himself right now. Come on, Jesus, all those people who got in line and waited for you to heal them, you you mean to tell us that you're not able to heal yourself and come down from the cross? Again, the the Gospel of Mark tells us that they taunted Jesus. Saying to Jesus while he's he's hanging upon the cross, Jesus, listen, we we, we really are open to worshiping you. Here's what we're asking you to do. Just, Just show us your power. Come on down from the cross and immediately we will fall down and worship you. so they insult, they mock, they jeer, they scoff, and in verse 29, one of the criminals hanging beside Jesus railed at him, you know, as if it were not enough to be numbered among the transgressors, crucified between two common criminals. Just think for a moment about how this would feel in a different setting. Let's just imagine you're you're falsely accused and falsely condemned. And, you know, they take your mugshot, And somewhere your mugshot is listed. And right beside you on one side is a serial killer. And on the other side, a rapist. And there you are, smack dab in the middle. And if it wasn't bad enough, this criminal joins in the mockery. In fact, <clears throat> if, we try to, if we harmonize Mark and Luke here, At the beginning of the crucifixion. Both criminals. Were mocking Jesus. Luke is the one who gives us the details. That as he. As he saw what was happening. On the cross. And as Jesus. Responded to his tormentors. And as he prayed. To his father in heaven. As he laid down his life. That this criminal turned to the Lord Jesus. In faith and repentance. And so these. But initially, at least, these are convicted criminals getting what they deserve, as he himself recognizes. And here they are, just like the Lord Jesus, trying to fight for their next breath. You know, mustering up enough strength to lift themselves up on the cross, to take in another breath. And and the one criminal has enough desire in his heart to mock Jesus that he uses the little strength that he has to rail against Jesus and say, if you're the Christ, why don't you save yourself and us? And so you see, one after another, after another, after another, takes their turn to humiliate and to heap shame on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, don't these, pictures, these passages paint for us a comprehensive humiliation. A a, a scene where Jesus is shamed by every single party. Just, Just think it through. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. After his own disciples have failed to pray for him, you have Judas's betrayal. Then you have the soldiers haul Jesus off to Jerusalem, where he's interrogated in this kangaroo court by the high priest, and rulers in an illegal manner by the way you have false witnesses conspiring together against Jesus then you have Jesus uh, sent to Pontius Pilate to face his own moral cowardice then you have Pilate ship Jesus off to Herod (coughs) excuse me where Herod has his own bit of fun with Jesus his soldiers blindfolding Jesus beating him and saying prophesy tell us who struck you Then he's sent back to Pontius Pilate where, though declared innocent, is condemned as guilty and is subject to Roman flogging. After the flogging, the Roman battalion has their sport with him. Then he's hauled off to the cross where he's shamed by the soldiers, by those passing by, and by those hanging beside him. It's a picture of of universal, comprehensive humiliation and shame. And it gets even deeper, which we'll think about together next week. I think that ought to raise a question for us. Was there ever a man that was so utterly humiliated, so unjustly treated? (laughs) And has there ever been a man treated so much less than he deserved? In his whole life, what did Jesus... What did Jesus do? I mean, Jesus was, he was sinless. He never acted out of pride, arrogance, anger, lust, envy, conceit, covetousness. He never sinned against anyone. He never took advantage of anyone. But what did he do positively? In in obedience to his heavenly father, he he showed mercy to the sick and needy. He he welcomed children. He loved children. Widows and orphans, the poor and the needy. He went about doing good. He poured himself into the twelve disciples. He lifted up women. He gave sight to the blind. He made the the lame to walk. He opened the ears of the deaf. He restored flesh to lepers. He raised the dead. See, Jesus deserved every honor you could. Every accolade you could imagine. He deserved it. But instead... The Gospels, as they tell us this story, he was mocked, beaten, scourged, spit upon, abused, and reviled. Has there ever been a man treated with such little dignity by people who were so far beneath him? You See, they should, have, <coughs> they should have reverenced him, but instead they reviled him. And so why is this here? Why, why does Luke fashion the narrative in this way? I think, again, a lot of people, they think the idea here is let's just, let's just be moved to this kind of superficial pity and feel sorry for Jesus. You know, man, it's, it's awful when you read this that someone like Jesus would have to go through all of this. And then occasionally, maybe once or twice a year, we... We, uh, we work ourselves up and we reflect upon what Jesus did for us in Calvary and we feel really bad for him. And you know what happens the next day. All of those feelings are gone and it's back to life as normal. You know, if, let, let's just remember from last week that this passage is not intended to move us simply to some kind of superficial pity. I mean, Jesus has already dealt with that issue as the crowds are following him out to Golgotha, and the women of Jerusalem are weeping, and he turns to them and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because of the judgment of God that is coming upon unbelief. And so the point of this story is not that we would merely feel some kind of superficial pity for Jesus. Frankly, if it was, Luke could have done a much better job. I mean, Luke could have gone into... All of the horrendous details surrounding the scourging of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus as the nails were driven through his forearms and as his feet were turned in one direction and the nails driven through his heel. And as he was hoisted up and the, the cross was dropped into its position and there was that dislocating jolt as Jesus was put into place. Luke could have gone into all of those details, but, but he doesn't. And so I think think these verses are here to show us that Jesus bore not only our sin, a topic that we will come to next week, but something that we perhaps haven't spent as much time thinking about, that Jesus also bore our shame. Now, you know, there, there are two types of shame. There is a shame that you ought to feel. Now, in our therapeutic culture, you maybe get the message that all shame is bad and, you know, ever feeling ashamed is, is, is just a bad thing. You need to learn to get rid of it. But that's not true. Because we we live in God's world. We live in a world where we are accountable to him. We are his creatures living in his moral universe. And there is such a thing as sin which is rebellion against the god who gave us life and sustains us and therefore there is such a thing as objective guilt and when we have objective guilt the right feeling is shame but there's a second kind of shame and that's the shame you shouldn't feel you know it's if you like it's misplaced shame it's it's not tied to any sin that you Have committed in your life. But perhaps it's connected to sin that someone in their life has committed against you. And so maybe you feel ashamed because you were abused, no fault of your own. And you know what? People in your life tell you that. They tell you that this isn't shame you need to carry, but you still feel the shame. Or maybe because you're a Christian and you're in circles where your family or your friends despise Christianity, they heap shame on you for for confessing Christ. Oh, you silly fool that you've come to believe such myths. Or less, maybe you feel shame because maybe you struggle learning certain things. Maybe you have a hard time speaking well in front of others. Maybe you have some perceived physical flaw and 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 you have this sense of shame that comes with it and it's not tied to any actual sin on your part but the feeling is just as real if not more so here's what I want us to see briefly today that Jesus can help us with both kinds of shame the shame you ought to feel and the same shame you shouldn't feel here's here's how <laughs> a few things here first Jesus takes care of our objective guilt so that we can be forgiven. In my place condemned he stood. My, my sin with its corresponding shame upon his shoulders. This is the primary way that Jesus deals with our shame. So that the root of shame is it's severed at the very source. It's the most important way he bore our shame. You see, he he sustained in his life, but in particular in his death, the utter disgrace that we all should feel for our sins. You know, have have you have you ever sinned and and felt disgraced? That's that's one of those you know, easy questions. Have you ever sinned and felt disgraced? The answer ought to be, well, yes, of course. I've returned to that sin again. I had that thought again. I said that thing again. I committed that sin again. And you feel real, deep, abiding shame. And Jesus bore our sin and shame. That's the message of the gospel. So that's the very first way he takes care of our shame. Objectively canceling our guilt so that we can be forgiven. Second, here's the second way Jesus helps us with our shame. By identifying with us. Now, you see... The incarnation of the Son of God is not simply that Jesus ad- identifies with us in our humanity. The truth of the incarnation is that Jesus identifies with us in our humanity at our worst and weakest. I think it's so important for us to understand this. So when you feel, when you feel mocked and humiliated and reviled and shamed, when you feel shame because you've been mistreated in some way, someone has torn you down, or whatever, when you feel that, consider, dear friend, dear brother or sister, that in the Lord Jesus, you have one who knows by experience what it means to be shamed in ways that I don't think you and I could ever imagine. What does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews tells us that In the Lord Jesus, we have a sympathetic high priest, meaning that he is able to sympathize with you. As as a man, he he felt what you have felt. He has has been there. And so you have one in the Lord Jesus who is able to come alongside of you and say, "I, I know what this is like. I know what this feels like. He is, as the word sympathy means, able to feel together, along with you. And because of that, and because of who he is, he is actually able to help you in your weakness. That's the second way. Here's the third way. He helps us with our shame. By showing us the way to turn from shame. And to not revile those who revile us. I'm going to go to a couple of passages here and say a couple of things. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Just listen to these words. They are likely familiar to us. Author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Okay, so if you're going to run the race... You have to keep your eyes fixed upon the one that Hebrews describes here as the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Now, you hear that word despised, and I know what we usually think as soon as we hear that word. It doesn't mean simply that Jesus strongly disliked the shame of the cross. Rather, this word despise means that Jesus looked at the shame of the cross. And considered it of no account. To despise something in the Greek word is to look upon something or someone. And consider it negligible. And so Hebrews is not just saying Jesus didn't like shame. Shame. He despised it. And he despised it as he looked on his shame. The mockery, the reviling, the humiliation. And he considered it as of no account. How can we do that? How did the Lord Jesus do that? Hebrews is saying, take all of your shame. And you you learn to despise it. Well, how do do I do that? How do I count shame in my life as nothing? Hebrews tells us, look to the Lord Jesus. How do we learn this from Jesus? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Here's the principle. You must believe in eternal joy. If you are going to rightly assess present shame. Because Jesus, Jesus believed that on the other side of this shame. Was eternal, unending, everlasting unspeakable joy. Now there's a second way we despise shame. I want you to take a look at this other passage. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 20. And I'm going here intentionally because along these lines some of you will be familiar with this. This passage is often I think misunderstood and misapplied. So I want us to think a little bit about how it's rightly applied to this issue of dealing with shame. (coughs) Excuse me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Peter asks, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's the other way you despise shame. How do you do do what Jesus did when you're mocked, shamed, hated? How do you not revile when others revile you? How? Well, what's it say? He continued entrusting himself to him, Who judges justly. Now, here's an important principle, dear friends. The Lord Jesus never calls you to do something in the Christian life that He has not Himself first done in living the life of faith. But let me also say that this passage, the words we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, do not mean that we overlook fragrant, 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 flagrant, there it is, flagrant sin and injustice. Nor is Peter telling you as a Christian that God's calling in your life is to endure the mistreatment and abuse of someone near to you in your life. That's not what Peter is talking about. In this passage, Peter is talking about Christians in the world suffering for being Christians, for living faithfully for the Lord Jesus, And their response is not to revile in return, not to threaten those who threaten them, but to entrust themselves to God who judges justly. And so you see, in Hebrews 12 and in 1 Peter 2, the key to despising shame, that is to say that such shame is of little account in my life, it is a belief that this is not the end of your story nor the end of the story. So instead there are, there is both joy and justice. In the life to come for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you, you look at the shame. The mistreatment. The reviling. The injustice. And you despise it. You count it as negligible. Because number one. As you keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. You know eternal joy is set before you. And number two. You know that there is a judge who will judge all justly. You see, in both cases, what you're doing, if, if you're following in the footsteps of Jesus there, is you're believing that shame is not the final word in your life. God has the final word. God in His grace has the final word. God in His justice has the final word. And therefore, the ending themes of your life are joy. And justice, because those are the ending themes of the story of Jesus. See, do you realize this is another important principle? I hope we understand that in union with Christ, part of what that means for us is that His story is now our story, that our life is governed by His life. The pattern of His life becomes the pattern of our lives. Here's another thing we need to know is that in all of life, what are we all doing from day to day as we try to make sense of our experiences? Maybe experiences in our childhood or experiences more recently in our lives. We are are taking the events of our lives and we are interpreting them in light of a larger narrative. We are fitting those details into a larger story in order to make sense of them. So we all have a way of taking events of our lives and and trying to, to, to interpret and make sense of them. Everyone is telling a story with the details of their lives. And for some, you know, if the narrative is, well, we're all just, you know, physical, accidental beings, then really there is no ultimate meaning to anything I've been through apart from the meaning that I ascribe to it. But you see, Jesus knew, Jesus knows what the real story is. He he knew the end of the story for himself and for those who belong to him. And it's a story defined by joy and peace. Your theologians, they, they like to talk about the two natures of Christ, that Christ is divine and human. They like to talk about the threefold office of Christ fulfilled as mediator, that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And we also talk about the Two estates of Christ, Christ in his exaltation and Christ in his humiliation. And the humiliation of Christ consisted in, in his being born and in a low estate to a poor family, born under the law, suffering the common infirmities of humanity and life in a fallen world. It consisted of his being falsely condemned and dying upon a cross and being buried in the grave. That that all is a summary of, of Christ's lifelong humiliation. But then we also speak of his exaltation that began with his resurrection and involves his ascension into heaven and his being seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and power and his coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. And all I want us to, to realize is as we think about these two estates of Christ and what they might mean for us as those who are united to Jesus in his humiliation and exaltation. As dear friends, let's, let's not forget the assurance that is given to the people of God as we remember that our lives do not end in a state of humiliation, but that humiliation by God's promise, will end in exaltation. As his people share in the glory of Christ. It wasn't the end of the story for Jesus, and therefore if you belong to him, it is not the end of the story for you. Shame is not the end of the story for any child of God. But you see, Jesus in the midst of his deepest shame even upon even on his way to calvary he saw by faith beyond the shame the eternal joy before him trusting himself into the hands of his heavenly father who judges justly and who will one day bring an end to all injustice forever and so he was able to despise his shame. And so Jesus can help us with our shame. I hope that's come out to some small degree as I've tried to explain it today. By, by dealing with our objective guilt so that we can be forgiven. By, by identifying with us, you have, a, you have a Savior who can truly sympathize because He has been there and can really help. But also by following in His footsteps as we as we keep our eyes fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith, we we know that shame doesn't get the last word over the Christian's life. Because Jesus, in his own humiliation, has secured a place for his people. A place defined by joy and perfect justice. You see, there never, ever again will you know sorrow, will you know shame, will you know humiliation, mistreatment, abuse. Never again will you feel warranted shame and shame you shouldn't have to carry. Why is that? All because we have a Savior, as Isaiah describes him, who was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross and bearing our shame. Thank you for being the perfect Savior that each and every one of us need. And we pray that today by your spirit, we would all be able to keep our eyes fixed upon you and following in your footsteps. Despise the shame and look forward to the joy and the justice that awaits those who rest in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.